light, an epiphany. We lived, when I was growing up, we lived out in the country, and I decided in grade school, about the same age, to take up the trumpet. And my mother suggested that I practice outside. (laughs) Now I know why. She also found a sale on cotton balls, too. That's probably why. We'll let the screen down, guys. There we go. Had a beautiful wedding last week, Brooks' wedding. We made it safely. I hope you didn't mind shaking in your own hand after we left, but we just made it there. We had to fight a little bit of traffic going to Santa Barbara. But the Lord really blessed. And uh, we not only had those that came for the wedding, this took place at the uh, Fest Parker Double Day or Double Tree Inn that's down on the beach in Santa Barbara. Up on the balcony, we had a crowd of people of motel guests and beach guests that came and listened to the whole sermon as well, too. So uh, the Lord is amazing who he opens the doors for to come and to hear. Now you got me on there. I'm not the one. I suppose we're not going to get a signal now. Something's happening. There we go. That looks better than me any day anyway. Let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I know that the power of your spirit is greater than the power of the devil himself. But the devil always wants to discourage us. We just pray that your power will enter in now and to turn our minds heavenward as you speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Phone rang about two in the morning, and a pastor is already as conditioned that when the phone rings at two in the morning, something's wrong. And it was true. It was Mary that had called me, and she said, Pastor, can you come to the little hospital in her town, there's been a terrible accident. She didn't say a whole lot about all I got out of it was the fact that it had something to do with her 17-year-old son who was a senior in high school and uh, was just about three months away from graduating and getting ready to go to college. I went to the little hospital, got there just in time as they were taking him and putting him in, in an ambulance because the little hospital couldn't take care of him. They didn't have the staff or the equipment, and they were taking him to a larger regional hospital in a community which was about 60 miles away. I had time to be able to pray with the family and to be there and then to follow the family on up to that hospital and to go in. And it was fortunate that the doctor that was on call, a neurosurgeon, happened to be a friend of mine who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and um, he called me out of the hospital room and, and came over and he talked to me before he talked to the rest of the family, and he says, I'm going to need your help. He says, when it comes to 17-year-olds, this affects everybody, but I need to share with them that their son is brain dead and that uh, he's going to have to suggest to them to shut off the life support system. Uh, 
we knew how that was going to affect the family. By that time, the word had spread out since he was in high school. It spread out to the other high school kids, and all the high school classmates were coming into the room, which made it even worse uh, because now we had to go in and tell the family. And so my friend, the doctor, went in and he shared with them and said, you know, we need to take the life support system off. They asked me, they said, can you do something first before we do that? And I said, anything. And he says, they said, can you anoint him and place him into God's hands? By the way, after following the church service today, we're going to have an anointing service for anyone who feels like they need some help mentally, physically, and spiritually. Uh, just to be able to come up, I'll have a call at the end and you want, want you to come. Anyway, we had the anointing service and uh, we all stood around his bed as they took off the life support system and we watched him take a couple of breaths of hair and then it stopped. The family kept saying, come on, Dean, breathe. But he didn't. And the doctor had to finally say, I'm sorry, but your son is dead. Probably one of the largest funerals I've ever conducted. We had to have it in a high school gym because there were so many of the students and their parents because he was a well-liked kid. And so a few days afterwards when I went to visit the family, his mother and father said to me, why? Why did this happen? We, we put him into God's hands. We anointed him. Why didn't God heal him? And you know, sometimes pastors just don't have the answers. I couldn't tell him why. You know, he had the whole future in front of him. And it was really hard on the entire family. They were hoping and praying that he would fight on his own and that God would reach down and touch and would help him and heal him and bring him back to life. But it didn't happen. You know, sometimes if you haven't gone through a tragedy in life, you will. If you haven't had some earth-shaking experience in your life, you will. It happens to all of us at some point. And we just don't like those experiences. There's a passage in Desire of Ages, page 528, that reads this way. To all who are reaching out to feel the guiding hand of God, the moment of greatest discouragement is the time when divine help is nearest. You know, during the good times, we can accept that by faith. But when the rug is pulled out from under you, that's hard to be able to accept. And those of you that have gone through terrible experiences, you know what I'm talking about. Beforehand, we can say, you know, God is with us. He's going to help us. We know that in a crisis, he's near. But when the crisis hits, then we sit there and we say, why? Why did it happen? You know, when a crisis strikes, for many of us, we feel like God is about light years away. He's too far away to hear my prayers. He's too far away to answer. I can't see any evidence of anything happening. He doesn't seem to be any purpose in this. And you know what else? The next sentence in Desire of Ages says this. 
they will look back with thankfulness upon the darkest part of their way. It almost sounds insane to say that you're going to be thankful for the time of hardship. How can you look back at the event when you're sitting there and you're saying, why, how can you be thankful for what's about to take place or what has happened or what will happen in the future? This has happened to so many people that I feel that it's important to address this because as we get closer to the end of time, we're going to see more tragedies. I wish I didn't have to say that, but it's a reality. And we need to be able to get all the help that we can get because we're going to face things as we go through life. So what I want to look at this morning are three New Testament instances where God is silent. I'll show you what I mean here in just a minute. Let's look at tragedy number one. We're going to go to Matthew 11, verses 1 through 5. Now look at this and listen to this very carefully. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John, talking about John the Baptist, when John the Baptist had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Where was John the Baptist? He was in prison. Prisons back then aren't like prisons today. They, don't have, they didn't have color television sets back then. It was very primitive. But in order to kind of see what's taking place, we've got to kind of look at the ministry of John the Baptist for a moment. John the Baptist, his first job was to make ready the people to meet the soon coming Messiah. He went out and he was to begin to preach and to share with them that the Messiah was coming soon. Upon seeing Jesus, you remember what took place. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now that word behold means observe and believe what I already know to be true. So, we are assuming at this point that John the Baptist realized that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the sacrificial lamb. Does that make sense? So he had a ministry He was willing to fulfill that ministry. He had heard from birth of what his ministry was to be. He went out to do his ministry, and he did it well. And he presented Jesus to the world, saying, this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. Now, we know that John, being a very outspoken man, had one night when a young lady was up dancing, we won't get into the dancing part, But he was willing to call sin a sin. He was willing to reveal that the lifestyles and everything of Herod and 
and his wife and the daughter and the whole bit and all the things that were happening was wrong in the eyes of God. You know, we need more people that way. That's willing to call a sin a sin and to stand up for God's way. And I hope that we all can do that. But because of that, he ended up in prison. That's why he was in prison. Now, his ministry has come to a halt. And so now here he is in this prison setting. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. But when you're confined by certain circumstances of life that happens your way, and it's out of your control, you begin to question God's plan. Am I really following God's plan now? What's happening here? Why am I in this situation? I have a job to do. Why am I here, I'm sure John was saying. Why am I here in this prison? Was I wrong about the Messiah? You see what can happen? Because sometimes we begin to question. And then so he sent his servants to be able to go and say, Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Do you see the doubt entering into John the Baptist's mind? Now, I've preached this before one time in other churches, and I've had church members say, Oh, don't ever preach doubt. Don't ever preach that somebody had negative thoughts about Jesus. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this is reality. When a crisis happens, it's very easy to begin to doubt and to say, Why? Why is this happening? What's going on? His confidence in Jesus has been shaken. And he needs some type of confirmation because he's confused now. Why am I here? Why is my ministry stopped? Is Jesus the one? We're going to see why he's questioning that in a moment. So he sends out his servants to be able to see Jesus. Now, here the servants come. Now, Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6. The servants are there. They repeated to Jesus what, what John the Baptist had told him to say. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Keep that last sentence in mind, because here's another evidence of a text in a place in a, in a passage that we sometimes jump over and we really don't investigate what it's saying. But here he is, he's telling the servants, take a look, here's what's happening. Look, I'm healing people. They're, they're bringing people up from the dead, uh, the preaching the gospel, all these things. Now, if you remember back when we were talking about John the Baptist and when he was in the prison and he was getting confused, do you remember what he said? John had heard in prison about the works of Christ already. Doesn't make sense. He's already heard it. He sends his servants and says, Are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus says, Look at the works that he's already heard about. What's going on? Except that it really confirms the fact that he is the one. So let's give a positive outlook on that. But it doesn't seem to make sense. He's already heard about it. While he's in prison, sends his servants out. They came back and says, yep, he's doing the works. Jesus said, 
Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The question we need to ask is, why would John the Baptist or anyone be offended by what Jesus is going to do? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. If we're in a crisis, we've got to be careful that we're not offended by what is going to take place. All right? Keep that in mind because we're going to keep going. But if I was John the Baptist, here's what I would begin to think. I would expect Jesus to rescue me from prison cell at any point. I mean, that's what he is. He's the rescuer. And I'm his relative. And so it just stands to logic that he's going to come and take me out of the prison. In fact, I would anticipate that every person that would walk close to my, my cell, that it would be Jesus coming to say to me, come with me, you're free to go back to your ministry. Because he knew he was raised to be this minister in this, this way that he was supposed to share the gospel. So he's waiting for Jesus to come, or at least I would think so if I was in his shoes. But the person who actually comes to the cell was the guard to take him to the execution room. Now, i got a hunch as they leave the cell and they go down wherever they're going to and they're going to where he's to be and executed. John's looking around. Where's Jesus? He's got to be around here someplace. Is he hiding over there? Is he over here? When's he going to jump out and rescue me? And he goes in to the execution room and he's waiting. Jesus is going to rescue me. He's going to rescue me. I've been praying. He's the Messiah. He's the one that has come to save. He and I are related. We have a ministry together. Surely He's going to be there. Is there any other purpose for me than to be this minister that's there? But He went in and they chopped off His head. The end of His ministry. What's going on? Do you know it would have been much easier for him to face his execution if Jesus would have at least told those servants, go back and tell him that, the, that you're going to die, but there's a reason for it. But you know what? Jesus didn't tell him. Jesus didn't give a reason. Jesus didn't say why. He didn't say anything. And for some, some people would be offended because Jesus was silent. If Jesus had given him that reason why, but instead John the Baptist was left with the silence of the Lamb. Tragedy number two. John 11, verses 1 through 2. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, 
whose brother Lazarus was sick. We know the story. We also know the fact that Jesus was friends with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, often staying in their home. So it wasn't like these are total strangers. He knew everything about them. He was with them. He stayed there. He slept there. But Lazarus became sick, very sick. So sick that they had to call the doctors in. So sick that the doctor says there isn't anything that we can do. So sick that his sisters were concerned about his health that he was facing death. So they did what would seem logical. They sent some servants to go to Jesus. And according to the context of the previous chapter, Jesus could have easily reached Bethany in a short period of time. Some scholars says that he may have only been anywhere from two to ten miles away. So it would have been easy when the servants came to, to tell him that Lazarus is sick. Uh, they were so sure that he was going to come that they didn't even tell, ask him to come. They just figured it was logical. He's going to come anyway. And so the servants went. Go to John 11 verse 3. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So we've got to look what is implied in this. They expected Jesus to come immediately. I mean, they were good friends. It would just be logical that that would take place. So the servants went and they told Jesus. They gave him the message. The one whom you love is sick. Do you know what Jesus did? He didn't do anything. John 11, verse 6. So when he, Jesus, heard that he, Lazarus, was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He didn't even give a message to the servants. That where, that's recorded. The servants went back to Mary and Martha and they said, you give him the message? Yep. Did he say anything? Nope. So, the sisters stood there and they watched and they waited for Jesus to come and to heal their brother. I've got a hunch that they knelt over his bed and they said, hang in there, brother. Hang in there. Keep breathing. Jesus is going to be here just any minute now and He's going to heal you. He has the power to heal. We've heard the stories you've heard Him tell of all the people that He has healed. He's going to come and heal you. Hold on. Be there. He's coming. But He didn't come. Now you and I know the outcome of the story. But the thing of it was, Martha and Mary didn't know what was going to take place. They had no idea what Jesus had in mind. All they know is we sent our servants, we told Jesus that Lazarus is sick, and he didn't say a thing. He healed others, and they were all strangers. So you would think he would come and heal his friend. And they waited and they watched. Why isn't he coming, I'm sure they asked. 
They probably went to the servants and said, you did give him the message, didn't you? Repeat it back to me. And they repeated it back. Yes, we told him. But where is he? And they keep looking out the window. And every time they hear a person walking by the house, they look out, is it Jesus? Is it Jesus? It's not Jesus. Finally, the word came like it came to Mary. The lady I told you about. Your brother is dead. That's not what they wanted to hear. They had to make plans now for the funeral. That's a harsh time is during that plan-making time because your mind is so confused and you're in such a state of shock. It's hard to make decisions. But you make the decisions and you finally go through it and you finally bury your brother and still Jesus isn't there. He never said a word. He never sent his condolences. Nothing. It's silent. And I'm sure that they started talking, sisters talking among each other, and they're asking the question, why didn't he come? It isn't like he didn't know. We told him. Why didn't he show up? Here's what makes matters worse. Jesus, back with his disciples, got to a point he realized that Lazarus was going to die. Look what he says, John 11, verse 15. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there. That almost sounds insensitive and sacrilegious to say something like that. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad that Martha and Mary wasn't there to hear that. They'd probably thrown shoes at him or something. John 11, verse 21. This is when Jesus finally showed up. Lazarus was already buried. Jesus shows up. Martha comes running outside. She's still looking and watching and waiting. She comes running outside. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see what she was expecting? She was really asking him, Why didn't you come? Don't you care? How many times when we go through a crisis, we say, Lord, we prayed, we prayed. Why didn't you answer that prayer? Don't you care? And Jesus went into the house. And when He went into the house, there was Mary, the sister. You know they were talking with each other and they were asking the same thing because when Jesus came to Mary, Mary said almost the exact same words as Martha said. Don't you care? Why didn't you come? It would have been a whole lot easier if Jesus had revealed to them His plan and said, look, I'm going to come, but I'm going to come a little later and I'm going to come after He dies, but I'm going to raise Him up from His grave so that I can give all of this lesson to the whole world and everybody's going to live happily ever after. And then Martha and Mary could sit over there and they can start giggling. And people are saying, why are you giggling? Your brother's sick. He's going to die. And they just sit in here giggling because they know what goes on. And they can't tell the secret. So they're just sitting there and they're just waiting and anticipating for Jesus to come. And He's going to raise their brother from the dead. But guess what? He didn't tell them that. They didn't know. All they met was 
silence from the Lamb. Tragedy number three. You're going to be surprised about this one. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, it says, was full of sorrow. It was weighing heavy on him. Now, we've got to stop and think for a moment. When the disciples had seen Jesus in other times, he was always dignified and in control. When the storm came in the boat and everybody was afraid for their lives and he was sound asleep and they woke him up, he didn't wake up in a panic. He just got up and very calmly says, Peace, be still, and it was calm. When the demoniacs were coming and the disciples wanted to run because these guys were foaming at the mouth and they were so strong that they broke the chains that were chained to them, Jesus didn't run. He stood there very dignified and in control and cast the demons out of those men. You see, every time when Jesus was confronted with situations, He stood there and He was brave and He was true and He was strong and everything was okay. But this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they looked at Jesus, He was full of sorrow. They could see it on His face. They had never seen Jesus this way before. Something was terribly wrong. He fell down on the ground. He didn't kneel down on the ground. He didn't sit on the ground. He fell to the ground because he was in such great agony. They could see the agony that was there. And Jesus made a prayer. Three times he asked if there was any other way. Let this cup pass from me if there's any other way. What was implied in that was that Jesus was expecting an answer from His heavenly Father. Father, is there another way? And then He got up and He went over to His disciples and they're asleep and He had asked them to pray because He needed prayer. And they were asleep and He'd wake them up and say, you know, pray. And then He'd go back and He'd kneel down again or fall down again. And He said, Father, is there any other way? And still He doesn't hear anything. And he goes back to his disciples and he says, you know, get up, pray. And he goes back again, falls down. He says, Father, is there any other way? Even though he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine will be done, he still wanted an answer. And what he got from his heavenly Father was silence from God. No plan, just silence. Jesus met silence when He asked for another way. He knows what it's like. 
Mary and Martha met silence when Jesus didn't show up. John the Baptist died with silence, never knowing God's plan as to why he was to die. And you might be thinking, well, Jesus was resurrected and everything turned out okay. And Lazarus was resurrected and everything turned out okay. But what about poor John the Baptist? John the Baptist was not resurrected. We still don't know why he wasn't spared. It's still silent as to what the plan was. But the key here is now, Jesus says, be careful that you're not offended of what's going to happen. It is very easy that if we get to a point where we meet silence from God when we're begging Him, give me an answer, tell me why, give me a purpose, and we don't hear it, it would be easy to be offended. But He says, don't be offended in Me. If it doesn't come out the way that you expected, if you don't hear the reason why, don't be offended. So how can I be that way? Well, sometimes people throw out a Bible text to try to help you. They want to make you feel good, mainly because they feel uncomfortable is what it is, so they want you to feel good so that I can feel good, and everybody will live happily ever after. So one Bible text is supposed to be the cure-all for everything. And they usually throw out one text more than any of the others. And we know this, many of us know this by heart. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The problem is, He didn't tell me His purpose. We believe that text when everything is going well. We accept that text by faith until tragedy hits, then it's hard to get comfort from that text. What is the purpose? Why is it happening? For those of you that still might be asking the question why, because of things that have happened in your past, why is God silent? Why didn't He tell me the purpose? Why hasn't He revealed these things to me? Let me give you two more texts that can be helpful to explain this one in Romans chapter 8. Okay? Because if we don't include these texts, when we go through a tragedy, it's hard to be able to see the good that's going to come from all the bad that's happening to us. Let me give you those two texts. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. Now listen to this very carefully. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, sometimes we question whether he is or not, but if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now look at this for a moment. We may not know why things have happened in our life, but we can be assured of this. According to this text, the cross of Jesus tells us that we have no reason to doubt the goodness of God. God might be silent in telling us why, 
but the cross guarantees all of heaven is on our side. We will experience tragedy before we can stand firm in that fact. We can, we can believe that. But by reason of the cross, God has given His all to rescue us from the problem of sin. He gave His Son. The cross is a guarantee that God will not be silent forever. He may not say something to you right now, just like He didn't say anything to John the Baptist. But He won't be silent forever. Someday we will find out. Someday we'll be able to look back on the darkest part of our lives and thank God that the cross guarantees a plan and a purpose. When I realize these things, then when tragedy hits, I can still say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine will be done. Even if he's silent and he doesn't tell me why, I'm not going to question him as to why. What I'm going to do is to say, you know what is best, and I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to be offended by your silence. In fact, it's going to draw me closer to you because I know you're on my side. By faith, no matter what comes our way, we will be able to say, it is well with my soul.
and sisters, there may be some here who are going through a hard, rough time, physically, mentally, spiritually. One of the things to be able to deal with that is James says that if any one of you are sick, to come, the elders call the elders and to anoint with oil and to pray, to be able to turn your life over to the will of God, even if he's silent. If there's anyone that feels the necessity of that this morning, I already have some who have asked for it. So you're not going to be a stranger, not the only one to come. But we're going to meet, if I can have the elders for a moment, we'll meet in this middle classroom, and we will have an anointing and a prayer service just for you. So if you feel the need, if you're physically, mentally, spiritually sick, and you want the Lord to be able to help you, whatever his will might be, come and meet with myself and the elders in that room. My wife will shake the hands of the people as they leave, and we'll go over here and uh, be praying with you and for you. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ, who sometimes is silent, as in the case of John the Baptist, will reveal his purpose to us at that second coming of Jesus. I can still say it is well with my soul because of the goodness of our God revealed on the cross of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.